The sermon title this week is Viewing Suffering and Sin, which we've been talking about, right? A lot, uh, First Peter is a book that, that's especially dealing with suffering in the, in the world. For being Christians in a, in a non-Christian world, we're going to experience suffering. Uh, we're also sinners, as we just talked about, and praise God for the righteousness of Christ towards sinners. But we're sinners who suffer in this world. So how do we view our lives, essentially, suffering and sin, in light of what I'll call ultimate reality? You'll have to wait for the explanation on that one as we get into the sermon. But that's the title this morning. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word, Lord, living and active. Your word, direct from you, the maker of all things, the God of the universe, the Father of light and love and grace and mercy, direct to us, your people. We, we get to hear from you, so we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that you are a God who, who seeks to reveal yourself to us. And you're a God who's intimately acquainted with our ways. You know our lives. You know that we are sinners and sufferers. And so you speak to us to lead us. You speak to us to love us. You speak to us to give us hope and guidance in a difficult, sin-broken, weary world. We can rejoice over that, Lord. So as we come and sit under your word now, we do pray that your Holy Spirit would move among us, move in our hearts and minds, and open our ears. Help us to hear what you have to say. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Viewing suffering and sin in light of ultimate reality. I um, want to quickly uh, introduce the thought flow of the message this morning by bringing up a term that maybe you, haven't, you didn't hear until maybe like five years ago, six years ago, but now it seems like we hear this term all the time. Here it is, fake news. Fake news, right? Um, that's a term that has become a regular part of our cultural lexicon the past few years. I think we all understand what it means. Uh, I mean, we think about it in terms of like media, messages that, are, that, are, that have broad uh, cultural reach, broad appeal, that have an agenda behind them, and they're fake. In other words, uh, it's not, truth is not important right? Um, an agenda is important instead. It is an untrue message. And whether you're politically on the left or the right, you think the other guys are the dispensers of fake news. But everybody is. Because uh, we're humans and we're sinners. <laughs> and, and lying is sort of, uh, and agendas are a part of our nature. Um, so fake news is a problem. It's a problem because, you know, people tell lies and that's a problem. But it, but that's not uh, the only reason why it's a problem. The real danger of, of fake news, the real danger of lies is that people believe them, right? That's the real danger. People believe them, and then the, they base their lives, they base the trajectory of their lives on what they believe to be true, something that's not true. That's dangerous, and we've seen that dangerous, and again, uh, we think so often politically. That's the only reason I'm bringing up politically. But whether you're on the left or the right, you see the danger in the other people believing what you see as fake news. 
we just don't see it in ourselves, and we need to see it in ourselves. And I'm bringing this up because I think that's the that's kind of where Peter wants us to, to, to swim right now in our thinking. He wants us to, to discern and understand that there's a fake reality and there's a true one. There's fake news and there's good news. There's true news. And he, he wants us to fix our mind on what's true. All right? That's, that's where my pastoral insight and sort of uh, ex- explanation of the text is going to head us, or where it's going to head us this morning. So the question is, how do we know what's true? What is it that we're supposed to fix our, our minds on? What is it that we're supposed to be devoted to? Uh, that's, that's, I think, where Peter's driving us. So let's read it. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to read the first six verses this morning. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join, in, join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. All right. Let's talk about what he's saying here. And let me try to explain to you my sermon title a little bit, where where my mind starts to go as I'm reading Uh, what Peter has to say. Here's the first point this morning. It's arm yourselves with the knowledge of ultimate reality that is revealed in Jesus Christ. Look back at verse 1 and 2 again. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, if you're currently thinking, all right, Bill, we just read that again. We've read it twice now. What does a Jesus-revealed knowledge of ultimate reality have to do with anything in these verses? Um, What the heck does that even mean, anyway? (laughs) Uh, I understand if that's where you're thinking and you're confused by that, but let me explain where my brain is headed here. I'm looking primarily at the beginning of verse 1. And again, look at it, he says, he says, because Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, right? So we're talk- I, I brought up this idea of what do we believe? What do we think? Are we, what, what news are we believing? He's talking about Christ suffering in the flesh, and therefore, because of what he's done, think similarly to Jesus. Arm yourselves in that same way of thinking. He did something. Jesus did something. Therefore, we should look to his example, and we should follow it. Now, that is a pretty common message throughout the New Testament. Jesus did something, therefore, we are to look to his example and follow it. So, let's drill a little deeper. What did he do here? What did he do? He says he suffered in the flesh. What does that mean? 
Why did he suffer in the flesh? How did he suffer in the flesh? And what does that have to do with the way we're now supposed to think as Christians? That's what I'm hoping to unpack for you in order to explain what I mean by an ultimate reality that is revealed in Jesus. Now, Andy looked at uh, the end of chapter 3 last week with us, and we saw similar language here. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And it says that he was being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So we look at that verse, and most commentators would say, yeah, that's, that's the therefore that we're looking at here in the beginning of chapter 4. This is, this is what Jesus has done. He suffered in the flesh. It means that he died. He died on the cross. He suffered, therefore, by dying. And therefore, if we were to look at chapter 4 and what Peter is saying for us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, and if we do that, we've ceased from sin, what he means is, that we're to prepare to suffer, possibly even to the point of death, with the knowledge that if the worst thing that could happen to us happens, we die. Our suffering leads to death, then ultimately that's okay because at that point we finally ceased from the bondage of sin. We're released from this life, this sinful body, this brokenness, so we've got nothing to lose. Now, all of that is, I think, essentially correct, but I don't think that's quite what he's saying here. Because after we cease from sin, in verse 1, look what he says in verse 2. He says, so then, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's not what you say to people who have died, Right? So if we've suffered in the flesh to the point of death, if that's what ceasing from sin means, it's going to be pretty hard, in other words, to keep living for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for our human passions, but for God's will. And by the way, the Greek word used in verse 18 of chapter 3 literally means to die, and the word he uses in chapter 4, verse 1, literally means to suffer. They're two different words, so he's not quite saying the same thing. He's saying there's something more, in other words, there's some other meaning to Jesus' suffering in the flesh that goes beyond just his dying on the cross. That's the point. So that begs the earlier questions. All right, why did he suffer? How did he suffer? And what does that have to do with the way we're supposed to now think as Christians? So my, my pastoral aim here this morning is I want to convince you that the sufferings incurred by Jesus had as much to do with the way that he lived as they do the way that he died. In other words, that his sufferings were not just his death, but his sufferings were incurred throughout his life and because of the way that he lived. In other words, his death as suffering was just the culmination of all of the sufferings that he experienced in this world. And the reason that he suffered in this world is because he came here to represent something that the world didn't like. And therefore, the world pushed back against Jesus. And what Jesus came to represent is what I'm calling ultimate reality. It is a reality that is diametrically opposed 
to the fake news or the false reality in which sinful humanity operates on the daily. So he was a threat. He was perceived as a threat and he was persecuted and ultimately killed. Now, there's a lot involved in what I'm, what I'm getting at here, so bear with me. I think this is, this is, there's some rich gospel theology here to unpack, uh, but it's a little, it takes a little bit of work. So follow me back. I want to show you that there are two realities at work, all right? That in, that, that in this world, there is an ultimate reality, and then there's sort of this facade that we live in that is ultimately false, and to, to see that, you've got to go back to the beginning of the Bible, and you've got to lay out a, a bit of a biblical theology. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Don't turn there, but just in your minds, I'll, I'll walk you back through it. What happens? God creates the universe, right? He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates uh, all the living creatures, and then he creates human beings. And he sets those human beings in the midst of a garden paradise where there's no sin, there is fellowship with God, there is, there's, there's no nakedness, there's no pain. He calls it good. It's, it's perfection, it's creation as God intended it to be. And it's this introduction of created human beings into the garden when God finally says that it's, it, is, it is very good, it's very perfect, in, in other words, this is ultimate and true reality. But then what happens? In chapter 3 of Genesis, the serpent, who is Satan, comes along and he talks the man and the woman into disobedience, right? He deceives them and he does it by telling them that there's more to reality than God is letting them experience. He wants them to think that this, this ultimate reality that they actually were experiencing was not all that there really is. That God was holding back something from them. And he convinces them that, that if they just, just kind of go outside the boundaries of what God has set for them, there's more for them to experience. And they believe it, right? They disobey the Lord. The first human sin enters into this ultimate reality and it, it wrecks it. It introduces chaos into reality. It introduces pain and sinful desire. And the whole thing was based on what? A lie. It's, it's fake news. And they believed it. And because, again, they believed this lie, their new reality is no longer the true reality in which God dwells, but a false reality that's backwards. It's undone. It's, 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 it's broken. It is opposed to God. And sinful humanity isn't just a victim of that new false reality, but we're told in Scripture that we actually love it. We love it. Let me put a couple verses up on the screen for you. Not long after the fall here in Genesis chapter 6, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's not victim language. That's, uh, that's language of guilt, right? 
2 Timothy chapter 3. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's the new reality, the false reality of the backwards broken world. And we're told that we like it that way. We, we not only listened to the fake news, we believed it and we set the trajectory of our lives according to it. Now, does that, does that do away with ultimate reality, with real truth? No, it doesn't do away with it because ultimate reality is ultimate truth. But Satan and man in sinful collaboration have now been blinded to that truth because we've bought the lie. Now here's the good news that comes in for the fake news. God in his grace and in his love for the world counters fake news with good news. Right? So at the end of Genesis chapter 3, when all this is undone and it's, it's broken and backwards, God promises to do something about it. He promises the coming of a Savior, and he tells us that this Savior, when he arrives, will undo the effects of the false reality that sin creates, that he will restore all things back to his eternal, perfect, and true, ultimate reality. And that promise points to Jesus. And when Jesus enters the world, that's what he does. He enters into this world that is heading full steam in the wrong direction and loving it as we're heading in the wrong direction. And he reveals to us that this direction that we're heading is false. We got to stop. We got to turn the other way. And what happens when he enters the world and reveals this truth that we're going the wrong direction, there's friction. Because we love the direction that we're going. We push against him. We fight against him. We don't want to hear what he has to say. It's like when you place an obstacle in the path of oncoming traffic, there's going to be a collision, right? And that's what happens. That's what Jesus represents in the world. He represents an obstacle in the way that we're headed. And the friction created came in the form of his suffering at the hands of sinful men and women who hated what he represented, and so we persecuted him even to the point of death. The problem today is that we don't see Jesus that way. I think too many people think of Jesus as just some nice guy who lived a couple thousand years ago who, who came to present like a different way of living. You could take it or leave it. You could choose to accept it if you liked it or not. But that's not who Jesus is and that's not what Jesus did. He didn't just come to introduce an alternate reality. He came to reveal ultimate reality. And by the way, that idea of ultimate reality, I keep using that phrase, it's not a new one. Jesus spoke of this ultimate reality often. He just used different terms. He called this ultimate reality 
the kingdom of God. I've come to reveal the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe, right? Turn to the kingdom. In fact, I count 53 times that he speaks of the kingdom of God in the Gospels. And he says, he tells us he's come to reveal it. He tells us what it's like. And it's more than just another name for heaven. He's not just talking about heaven. How do I know this? Because there's one unique instance in Scripture where Jesus opens the eyes of people to see this kingdom of God, and it's not heaven that they see. It's ultimate reality that they see. And we read it a little bit earlier. I had Jade read it. I want to flip back there. Keep your finger here in 1 Peter. Go back to Mark chapter 9. I believe it was on page 844 if you're using the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It's a remarkable thing for him to say. Some of you right in front of me right now, he's saying, you're not going to die. You're not going to have to wait to get to heaven, in other words, to see the kingdom of God. You're going to see it before that, and you're going to see it in power. And then what happens? Right after that, after six days, he took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Something changed, right? This this. Normal human expression of Christ was transfigured into a glorious, more than human observance. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. It's kind of funny, right? He's just so like, oh, that he just says, uh, you know, whatever comes to his mind. Let's, let's make some tents. He doesn't know what to say. He's terrified. He's frightened. Why is he frightened? Because he's seeing something beyond the obvious broken false reality that he's been seeing up until this point. There's something more that he's seeing. How do we understand that? It's like, it's like Jesus in that moment, as he says, you're going to see what the kingdom of God is like. He peels back this veil. It's almost like he takes this knife and sort of cuts through the facade of this false reality that we all live in and breathe in and know, and he shows them there's an ultimate reality behind it. You say, that sounds kind of like the Matrix. Are you talking about like the Matrix? Kind of. I mean, it's kind of like that. Like the, the idea of miracles. We think of miracles as being things that, that go beyond uh, and break the, 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 the laws and the boundaries of nature. But I'm not sure that's ultimately what miracles do. I mean, they, they appear to break the laws of nature, but I think what a miracle really is, is it's a pulling back of the facade and showing us what's beyond what we see. 
Like there is a realm, a kingdom, a reality that's far greater than what you know. And miracles just give us glimpses into that reality. He shows them there's more than what we see. There's a bigger truth. And if you're Peter and James and John in that moment, I think your mind is blowing. Right? Wouldn't your mind be blowing? And there's the thing. Peter, who's there and experiences that, is now writing this to us. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. And I think this is what he may have in mind as he's writing to this people and to us. How do we bring this back to our passage? It's this. Bottom line is when you have the knowledge of ultimate reality, like Peter now does, it changes everything. Living in light of ultimate reality in a false world, now Peter wants us to understand, like Jesus, it's going to cause friction. When you know there's something more and you're living for that in a world that doesn't want to hear that and can't see that, it's going to cause friction. It caused friction for Jesus. It's going to cause friction for you. But he says, Jesus suffered in the flesh in this way, so arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Hebrews chapter 12. It's a very familiar verse. I'll put this on the screen as well. You guys know this passage. Looking to Jesus, we're, we're told to look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. He's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider that verse for a minute, all right? What, 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 are, we, what are we seeing about Jesus? Jesus has this joy that's set before him there's something bigger that he sees beyond the cross of suffering that's immediately in his sight. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews says that's the joy that was set before him. This, this ultimate reality that he knows, this kingdom of God, this I'm going to be seated at the right hand of God as I walk in obedience through this suffering and accomplish the will of my Father. That was joyful for him to endure the suffering that was immediately visible. And then the next verse, he says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint of heart. So in other words, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, just like Peter is saying here in chapter 4. That's his point. When in the midst of unjust suffering, by the hands of, of sinful people, the only way to endure it in hope and not in fear, is to know that you're living in light of something bigger than it, beyond it. You're living in light of an ultimate reality. There's more than we see in this world. You see it even though your persecutors do not. And you don't just believe it. You arm yourself with this knowledge and you use it then as sort of like a weapon to plod through your sufferings in hope and in assurance that this is not all in vain. Life is hard. Life is difficult. Persecutions and sufferings may come, but it's not in vain. There's something beyond it. And I see it now. There's a joy. I can walk through this. That's what Jesus did. 
Peter's saying, that's, what, that's how we ought to live. That's, that's, an, a, that, that's a life-changing perspective. And it's perspective that I, I fear that the church just doesn't have enough of. And a big, a big motivation, I've said this before, but a big motivation for wanting to walk through 1 Peter right now is because I see that deficiency in the church. And I want to encourage us to be far more resilient in difficult days, in sufferings, in pains, and even persecutions, to see that there's more to this life. There's more reality than what we see. And when you see that way, then you can face hardships and sufferings in life and know that they're not just there, but they're normal. They're to be expected. Because if I'm arming myself with the same way of thinking as Jesus, then I'm representing a reality in the world that, the, that, that tells the world it's going the wrong way. And that I've turned and I'm going the other way. And again, that's how head-on collisions happen. I think that's the main idea of verse 1. Now, there's six verses, so there's five more to go. But don't worry, the rest of them are going to be quicker because they all hinge on that idea. Remember, it, it reorients us to live in this world in a way that will, yes, it's going to cause suffering if we're following Christ. It's going to cause unjust suffering, but it's going to give us the perspective we need to endure that suffering, which is what I think he means by the rest of verses 1 and 2, and then fleshes out more in verses 3 and 4. Read it again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they'll give an account, and we'll stop there, because I want to focus in on what he's saying here in verses 3 and 4. It's the second point of the message. It's this. The knowledge of ultimate reality will change your attitude towards sin and suffering will change your attitude towards sin and suffering. So we just talked about seeing ultimate reality, seeing things beyond, seeing things through the, the lens of, of, of Christ. And once you've seen that, it changes the way you view everything else, right? Especially your own sin. You say, if, if Jesus suffered because he represented ultimate reality in a sinful world, and if the current sufferings of the church are a direct result of that same attitude, in other words, the world also hates us because of what we represent, then how or why could I ever continue to see sin as appealing? Verse 3 could literally be translated like this. The time that has passed is more than enough for sin. 
When we identify with Christ, we're, we're, to, we're to demonstrate that new identity in him with a break from sinful living. We should want nothing to do with sin in our lives because sin denies the ultimate truth that we've been set free to see and to experience. Now, clearly what Peter's not saying here is that if you're a Christian, you're never going to sin again. He's not saying that. In fact, the Bible tells us that if you say you're a Christian and that you say that you're without sin, you're a liar and you're self-deceived. That's in 1 John, right? The idea here is that when we're tempted to sin, though, when we're tempted to sin because of our new perspective and identity in Christ, we should want to fight it. When I'm tempted, I should want to resist it. I should want to push back against it. I shouldn't just accept sin. I shouldn't just minimize sin because I recognize sin is my enemy. Sin is the source of the unjust persecution that Jesus endured and that I will endure, that the church will endure. And true Christians should then want no part of that. We should strive to be done with it. That's, that's another application and truth of following Jesus, of fearing the Lord, putting away sin, that I, I wonder if the church has sort of lost our, um, our vitality for. It's easy for us to minimize sin. But we're called to fight it. You know, the Puritans understood that a lot better, I think, than we do. Maybe you're familiar with uh, John Owen, who was one of the great Puritan theologians. Listen to what he says about the fight against sin. He, he asked this question. He says, do you mortify your sin? In other words, do you, do you put it to death? Do you make that your daily work? He says, be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So as I've, I've studied this passage, I've had in my mind this picture of an escalator. Have you ever gone to the bottom of an escalator that's, that's, that's coming down and tried to walk up it? You know? Hopefully you all did that when you were kids and not as adults, because it looks ridiculous when you're an adult. It's fun when you're a kid, though, right? You try to go up the down escalator. Um, it's going the opposite direction of you, Right? And so what happens? It's, it's really hard. It's hard to go up. It's, it takes effort to do that because if you stop for a minute, what's it going to do? It's going to take you right back down, right? As long as you keep going, you can make progress. Sometimes you get, maybe you, you're kind of stuck staying in place, but as long as you keep going, you're not going backwards. But the minute you stop, you do. It'll carry you further away from your goal. And I think that's a helpful a picture for us to have in mind when it comes to this idea of what it looks like to, to fight sin in our lives. If there's little or no fight against sin in your life, there's something really wrong with your idea of Christianity. It means that you're not living in light of the kingdom of God. And if that sin that persecuted and killed the Lord is viewed as sort of a light thing to you and, and your life is, is, is very 
very much like, it's, it's, it's not any different from the world around you, then you're living a lie. And you're not living in light of the truth. You're, you're blind to ultimate reality. And I think that's what Peter is communicating here to the church in no uncertain terms. He's saying, if you arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, that if, we, if we're going to be representatives of, of the good news amidst the fake news, you're going to suffer, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get friction, you're going to get pushback. But keep moving forward. Keep pressing on. Because the minute you stop and go back, sin is just going to carry you right back to the bottom. Now, I know that when, when we talk like this, it can be a discouragement for a lot of you because you feel the weight of sin in your life. And you hear me stand up here and say, are you fighting against sin? Are you, are you killing sin before it kills you? And it discourages you because you think, I feel the weight of my sin, and that sin remains. I hate my sin, but my sin remains. So how do I encourage you in that? Again, the issue is not whether or not you still sin. The issue is, do you desire to fight it? John Owen also says, your state is not at all to be measured by the opposition that sin makes to you, but by the opposition that you make to it. Now, here's the good news. Sometimes fighting sin can be very proactive. It can be walking in obedience because we're, we're, we feel filled with the Spirit and, and full of His Word, and, and we feel like, you know, like that, that battle, uh, because of our view of ultimate reality, is, is not as hard. But there are other times when the only way that we don't go backwards on that escalator. In other words, the only way we can fight sin is by just clinging to the grace of God in Jesus Christ who's fought it for us. And whether you're just clinging or whether you're proactively walking forward, the truth is you're clinging to the grace of God who has fought it for you. Jesus has overcome sin. Fighting sin doesn't mean figuring it out. As Andy was saying earlier, it doesn't mean cleaning yourself up. It means clinging to the grace of God in Jesus who's washed us clean and given us a righteousness that we couldn't obtain on our own. But when I'm aware of that, I'm hopeful I'm fighting sin. When sin tempts me to despair, I just cry out and I say, Jesus, your death, your blood, that's my hope. Help me. And I'm fighting sin. That's the evidence of genuine saving faith. And I think that's what Peter's getting at here. Just time's passed for, for, for sin. No more sin. Fight it. Cling to Jesus. Think like him. And yes, that's going to be a hard life. You're going to suffer. You're going to face opposition. But arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You're living for an ultimate reality in, in, instead of a false one. That's the kind of change that the knowledge of ultimate reality brings about. And so we find sin less and less attractive. We turn from it 
And as a result from turning from it, yes, we stick out as obstacles in this world just as Jesus did. So you're not just on an escalator that's coming down and you're trying to go up, but there are people on that escalator who are happily going down with it. And as you're walking up that escalator, I mean, picture this. The next time you go to a shopping mall and you see an escalator, start walking up the down escalator where people are coming towards you. What are they going to do? They're not going to like you very much. They're going to they're think you're an idiot. They're going to despise you. They're going to bump into you. They're going to malign you. They're going to say, why aren't you going down with us? That's the direction this thing is going. What's wrong with you? And it will only be heightened by you saying, no, the direction of this elevator is wrong. What's at the top of this elevator is where I'm headed. That's where ultimate reality lies. That's where Jesus has gone. There will be fr friction. There will be friction. Is that hard? Yes. Can it be scary to live that way? Yes. All of this perspective is hugely helpful, though. It changes everything about the way we view that scary, hard suffering. It doesn't change the fact that we're still going up on a down escalator and bumping into people. It doesn't change our circumstances, but it changes our perspective. There's ultimate reality at the top of this escalator. Jesus is here. I'm following him. I'm sure that the Christians that Peter was writing to were encouraged by these words. But you know what? They couldn't just tuck them away for some later day. They were immediately relevant. They were needed words. They would read this letter. They would leave their place of fellowship on that Sunday morning as they read this letter together. And they would step outside into a city that was ready to persecute them now. Perhaps some of their number had already been persecuted. We talked about it getting worse. It was going to get worse. Maybe some of them already had been killed. So Peter leaves them with this one final word of encouragement. It's the best kind. He reminds them that, look, in the midst of all this, God is in control. Look at verse 5. Those that malign you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. My third and last point this morning is that the gospel alone reveals and prepares us for this ultimate reality. We cannot control our circumstances. We cannot predict them. We cannot avoid them. But there is one circumstance that we can be sure of, and it's the circumstance that supersedes all other circumstances. It's this fact that God has given us the gospel of his Son. God has revealed in Jesus the good news of ultimate reality. Jesus didn't just come to confront our sin. He didn't just come to say, you're going the wrong way but he came also to conquer it. 
He came to do something about it. This sin that, that hounds us, this sin that separates us from the true reality has been dealt with. Yes, Jesus suffered in the flesh, and it ultimately led him to the death on a cross. And that death on a cross was where he put that sin to rest. It's where he bore the just punishment of our sins. It's where he bore the unjust uh, punishment of our rebellion against him. And he did all that so that you and I might, by faith in the sufficiency of his actions, be free from the bondage of sin and its ugly effects forever. You know, I, I think, as, again, Peter's readers didn't just have their own sufferings in mind as they read this letter. They would have been thinking of the faces of, potentially thinking of the faces of beloved brothers and sisters who had already been persecuted. Or maybe even had already been martyred for the sake of Christ. And what Peter wants them to know is as you, as you, as you encounter real suffering, real persecution, real martyrdom perhaps, whether it's you or someone you know, God has sovereignly planned their receiving and believing of the gospel for that very purpose. God has already given to them the gospel promises, the hope, the salvation that they need so that even if the world could throw its worst at us, our hope in Christ is certain. There's a bigger reality than what we see. And that you can take comfort in that fact when you or your friends or your loved ones begin to experience the difficulties of the fake reality because in light of ultimate reality, we have hope. That, that comfort extends to us. It extends to you. What, what are you dealing with in life? What are the difficulties what are the sufferings that you're encountering in life? The message is, look, whether, whether hell or high water, you keep your focus on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. You believe God is in control of it all. You believe that God will, will, will judge all people according to the truth of the gospel. And he'll sort out whether we have trusted in him or whether we've loved the lie. But if you've trusted in him, the gospel is your hope. And it's our only hope. And he's provided it for all who will suffer as their deposit of assurance that God is in control and that God is for you. Let me close with just a couple of thoughts here. In your suffering, from whom are you taking your cues? Who's in charge? Are you afraid of your opponents or circumstances, or are you controlled by a holy God? If you're afraid of your opponents and circumstances, you're going to live in fear. But if you look to Jesus you'll be strengthened in faith. Looking to Jesus means living in the reality of who he is and what he's done for us, and that reality changes everything.
when your heart is set on the reality of our incomparable Jesus, you can have hope in suffering. You can be ready to reach out fearlessly for Christ, both in word and in deed. Those are great truths. And you've got to take them to heart in light of the revelation of ultimate reality through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Can you see it? Do you believe it? Does that knowledge drive you to turn from the lies of sin in pursuit of the far surpassing truths of God? And do you trust that this God will sustain you in times of suffering and persecution because he is in control of all things and he's provided every means necessary for you to live in the spirit the way that God does? If you can believe that, arm yourself with that knowledge. Let's pray. Lord, what a blessing. What a blessing it is to see beyond what we see. What a wonderful gift it was for you to send your son into this world. For the eternal God to take on human flesh. To reveal the kingdom of God to us. This ultimate reality. And to promise us that you want to restore us back to that true fellowship, that true life that is found only in you. Lord, I think, I think it's too easy for us to forget that big picture in our Christian lives. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to remember these truths as we walk into this week. So we're going to face trials. We're going to face sufferings. We may face persecutions. We're certainly going to face temptations to sin. We're going to be given all kinds of fake news this week and lies that, that tell us that, that we don't need you, that we can, we can find our own way, that, that we can just sort of get along uh, with, with the ways of this world, that, that our comfort and our security can be found there, that there's, there's more to life than what you have to offer us. We're going to be told that lie countless times this week. And when we are, Lord, bring to mind the truths of, of Scripture that we've just looked at this morning and help us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had. Help us to see you and your truth as a far better way and help us to cling to Jesus as he leads us there. Make us resilient people. Make us fighters of sin. Make us strong to endure in hope. And thank you, Lord, that in Christ all that is possible. Lord, as we sing to him and about him, as we take communion together and remember his sufferings for us, arm us, Lord, with that hopeful knowledge to carry us forward. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.